CEE Central Europe Explained An IDM podcast series powered by Erste Group Episode 31 Imagine there was a war Have you been watching the war in Ukraine via TikTok, Instagram or YouTube? Like many of you, I have recently spent a considerable higher amount of time than usual by scrolling through social media posts on Ukraine. I was trying to comprehend the incomprehensible. From a safe distance, I've been watching how strangers, but also friends and colleagues from Ukraine became refugees, victims, war reporters or fighters. Social media seems to create an intimacy that can be overwhelming. Then there is a lot of disinformation, unverified information, propaganda and signs of certain leader cult out there. It is messy, it is painful, but it is also impossible to look away. Welcome to our podcast series Central Europe Explained. My name is Daniela Apaidin. I'm a research associate at the IDM and I'm hosting today's episode on the power of images in times of war. In the previous episode, I talked with Hanna Tropic from the Cross-Border Journalism Network in Ost about local journalism in the Western Balkans. Recording it in February, we discussed measures for more resilient media, not knowing what enormous challenges for reporters in Central Europe lie ahead. Today, I welcome an expert for war research and media theory, Dr. Daniela Ingrova. Daniela, thanks for finding the time. Thank you very much for the invitation. Hi. Hi. So, Daniela, you work at the University for Continuing Education, Krems, and you are a war and democracy researcher, a media theorist and a consultant for film productions and film festivals. From 2012 to 2016, you led the Department for Media and Conflict at the UN-mandated University for Peace in Costa Rica. And later on, you were a guest professor at the HHS in the Netherlands. In your research, you focus on topics such as dystopian democracy, media ethics and fake news, among others. I was really wondering of how you personally and professionally experienced the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the usage of images in war reporting. Well, as a private person, I think I'm, I'm exactly in the same situation as you are. I, I'm looking out for friends via social media. I'm terrified to imagine uh, how people live and under which circumstances they are. And I follow those pictures and those images. And then there is this professional part where I try to analyze what I see and where I realize that the pictures always only show me a very, very small part of what is actually happening. So we see what is within a frame, but we never see what is above that frame or behind the camera, what is actually happening behind the person who is making the video or taking the picture. So pictures are also always an interpretation of reality. And one can really see that very well in this crisis right now. Well, actually, I prefer to, to call it a war because I think very often if we say crisis, then we uh, diminish what it is. But it is a war and a lot of people are suffering. A lot of people have to flee. And we see that in the pictures. But um, as you said, we are so lucky because we are here in, in Austria right now at the moment and feeling safe and 
yeah, the pictures just seem like an alternative reality. And only if there is a familiar face or if something is very, very close to our emotion, then it suddenly becomes this other kind of reality. But what a picture also always is, it is a moment of the past. A picture can never show us what is going on right now because we always get the pictures later. Even in lifetime reporting, we still see the pictures as a fracture of a single moment. And if I feel that a friend is safe, then I do not know whether he or she is safe in the next moment. And that's very, very terrifying. And this is something that people before us never had because they didn't have social media. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, behind that lies a lot of power, as you already referred to. And I was wondering at the moment when, when we look at these images that we see every day in, in TV, but also on social media, what are the main actors kind of trying to win the war of images? What would you say? Who, who are trying to, to show us the, the interpretations? Well, something that is quite new is that the governments create their own pictures. Not only they have done that in other wars as well, but now they have their own media channel to stream them. Uh, which makes it a little bit different. So obviously they are main actors, but then also um, a famous person can become a main actor or on TikTok, we can see it where somehow uh, a young person be becomes very famous because of one video, because of one thing that he or she says. So the images can be very, very powerful, but this is not entirely true because already in the very first war where war photographers participated, which ironically was at the Crimean War in the 19th century, so in, in Ukraine as well. Um, already there, the different photographers showed very diverse realities of what was going on. And both kinds of images had, had huge consequences for what was going on. I mean, the pictures of Howard Russell, for example, he's not famous anymore, but he was a British photographer. And Contrary to Roger Fenton, who showed nice and nearly romantic pictures of the soldiers sitting together, uh, eating, chatting and so on, Howard Russell actually went to the um, well, to the places where the war actually happened. And he showed horrible pictures, pictures that would be forbidden today, ethically. And they were shown in a museum and it really came to a crisis of the government because of those pictures. So let's let's stick maybe to this role and to this power of photographers. What would you say are um, what role do gender related uh, aspects play in this war of images? Then, I mean, there are many many female uh, war reporters, war photographers, but still, I, I can imagine they might not be the majority, and therefore also might uh, shape our picture or each imagination of of the war as well. So um, what would you say? Are there kind of uh, stereotypes outside as well? Can you, can you observe something? Mm -hmm. Thank you very much for that question. I think gender really has become something that we need to discuss um, according to this war, because right now we also discuss why do the women have to flee or, or stay behind somewhere and, and do the cooking for the soldiers and the soldiers, the, the men go, uh, our soldiers take up weapons and why do they have to do that even if they don't want to. But um, coming back to the 
to the female photographers, what we have seen so far is that women often show different aspects of the war. They tend to show the daily life also. And uh, of course, for a female war reporter, it is much more dangerous as war is always extremely dangerous for, for women, but more and more female photographers just work exactly the same way as, as male photographers do. But do they also show something different or do something differently? Like the, the female gaze, uh, as it is called, is it, is it different, the female gaze on war? I very often detect that the female gaze, as you call it, I really like that expression. Um, the female gaze in that sense is more about how is our daily life concerned? So to show it from a very human perspective. But I've also seen pictures of men who, who really can show what, what is behind the daily life because a war is not only about fighting, of course, but uh, we can also see that daily life is so much influenced by everything. I mean, people who do not have water, people who are injured and so on. And women very often tend to show that, but this is maybe not only the female gaze, very often they are also not allowed in those places. And very often we can see that that soldiers tend to allow men rather to accompany them than female war reporters. Mm -hmm. I would also like to focus a bit on an aspect that you mentioned before when it comes to, to ethical uh, questions. I mean, there is this famous picture of a man falling down the World Trade Center at 9-11. Uh, it was widely criticized to, to be published. And back then you had uh, mainly professionals who decided about publishing. Uh, you had this kind of gatekeepers, of course, who could decide if, if an audience can handle the sensitive images or not. But in social media, we don't have this kind of gatekeepers anymore. So um, what do you think? Um, how can we decide what is bearable, what is ethical and what not? Um, I mean, there are, there are ideas of the trigger warnings, for example. Yeah, yeah, I have to admit that I do not really believe in trigger warnings because they very often lead to the contrary, that people get more interested and so on. There's a famous example from, uh, from Congo where, well, war criminals invited journalists to a place and then instead of giving a press conference, they killed everybody in the village. And then the journalists at home had to decide whether they wanted to Uh, to show the pictures or not. And uh, in, in Germany at RTL, there was one reporter who didn't want to show the, the pictures, but somebody had told him to. So he gave a trigger warning and told the people, please don't watch it, switch, switch away. And you can imagine what, what happened. Everybody stayed on. And not only that, next day, everybody also on other TV channels reported about those pictures. And I think that this very often happens with trigger warnings, that they do not help, but they concentrate us, they make us noisy and curious and we want to see more. But your, your question is, is really about one of the, the main questions that we have with journalism right now. Any quality media outlet has an ethical code of conduct and we know exactly what people are allowed to show in a picture. When do you show a face? When do you not show a face and so on? For example, the picture that you mentioned from the World Trade Center 
most media outlets probably would not show that that picture anymore or uh, very far from a distance. But then on the social media, nothing of that is, is true anymore because everybody just takes a picture or a video of everything and yeah, <laughs> uh, there's no self-censorship in the sense in an ethical way. Um, so I think what we really, really need is to educate ourselves on that because one can do a lot of harm by publishing something that, that is too cruel or that maybe even can be found by, by someone who, who is related to the person. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's a question of responsibility and I guess this, this has to be shared on all sides. I was just wondering a bit more about what, what we can do, what role we play as, as audience, as recipients. If we, if we are, for example, are used for, for propaganda, if, if our collective behavior in social media is used for it, um, do you have an idea how to, yeah, how to teach people that? I believe that um, we tend to, to be part of, of the propaganda. So I, I really don't, don't want to say that we are victims of the propaganda, but on the contrary, we very often contribute to it ourselves by our behavior. So I think that in civic education, we should have much more uh, education on media also in schools and maybe also um, the media themselves could, could teach us more how to, how to deal with that because uh, we very often seem to forget about our own responsibility. Normally, we, we can only see what we have learned to see. And in our culture and because of our uh, experience and so on, we have a tendency of looking at pictures in a certain way that might be, um, might be a little bit different for everybody, but then it, it is still what we have learned and how we normally behave. And it is very hard for us to look at pictures in a different way and therefore to detect something else or um, maybe also to deal with what we see. And then, then we share the pictures without really looking at um, the entire picture, but we maybe only look at the headline or at the sensation of a picture and not about, we don't look at the, um, at the damage that a picture can do or sharing a picture could do. So I think that before sharing something, we should think twice and, and also before um, just consuming the pictures, because of course we see so many pictures today that it is a way of really consuming anymore. Uh, so I think we have to, to look at the pictures with concentration and really um, trying to reflect what is the picture. It, can it be true? And um, is it really a current picture? And what does it actually tell me? And so on. So there's a huge responsibility, but um, yeah, <laughs> very often it's just so, so comfortable to, to gaze through and that's it. Mm -hmm. I, I was also wondering if uh, our perception of images has changed over the decades, for example, since 9-11, uh, if, if this has changed since we've been using more and more social media and are used to this kind of flood of, of, of videos and, and, and photos and so on. I was wondering if it has anything to do with the longing for truth and for, for longing for reality and since this, this world is getting more and more complex, since the, the war that we now experience is also so complex and complicated, 
Do you think that this is um, something specifically, something that, that is uh, related to the Zeitgeist, for example? <laughs> yeah, the French philosopher uh, Jean Baudrillard once said that images help us to feel alive. Because if we can watch a picture from a war situation, that means that we are in a situation where we are still alive and where we can uh, still enjoy some, some safety. And I agree with him that it is really quite comforting to do that, right? Um, but of course, pictures can describe something where words lack and they can give us some insight into a truth or in a reality. And maybe it is easier to look at the picture and just really stare at it instead of reading a, a difficult text. But we can never be sure that, that what we see is correct and that it is really from that situation um, that it is referring to. The good thing is that people have become a little bit more suspicious and they do not believe anything anymore. So well, not anything, but um, we tend to doubt what we see in pictures. And the funny thing is that we still go on consuming them. And sometimes the video just feels like uh, a Hollywood movie and we look at it. And then only afterwards we realize, wow, this was not just a movie. This has actually happened. So we do have much more education on images. We do see many more pictures. And yet I don't think that we can understand the truth by looking at pictures. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. I mean, thinking of this effect in, in media science, when you uh, learn an information and then forget about the source, but the information is already received and that's already in your mind, I, I guess with a, with a picture that uh, is related to an emotion, this is then even, even harder to get rid of this image. Exactly. And with each picture we see, we all take the other pictures with us. So um, we, we start to see pictures in a series and we only interpret them as a series. So there is no longer this one single picture that is, that is famous uh, and tells us about the war situation, but we have so many. And if, if we saw something in one picture, then we take that story and the memory of it and also the emotion with us. So in the end, it can be very, very overwhelming also. And well, I think a lot of psychologists in the meantime really recommend not to watch too many videos or too many pictures because it can um, do so many damage also to our psychology. Yeah, that's a good tip, I think, at the end of this of this conversation to really reflect on, on um, your own media consumption, I guess, and reduce it to, to, to a certain limit if you feel that it's, it's getting too much and too overwhelming. Daniela, thanks a lot. Uh, was was very interesting, very touching as well on this very sensitive topic at the moment. Nevertheless, it's so important. And uh, as usual, at the end of the podcast, I would like to ask you for some cultural input, uh, some inspiration for our listeners. Do you have anything that would fit here? Yes, I've been thinking about it. And I think I need to recommend one more time the pictures of this very, very famous war photographer, uh, Robert Kappa, because all the pictures that he did, very often he went back to the reality of, of children also. He also tried not to show dead people. He tried not to show injured people, but to show what 
a war situation can really mean. And he did an excellent job in that. And very often I find inspiration in looking at his pictures. I can see all the tragedy of war. And at the same time, I can also see the art because very often we forget that a lot of those war photographers are also artists. And Robert Kappa and also his girlfriend, um, Gerard Daro, they were excellent artists as well. So I recommend to look at their pictures. And the wars of that time are so long time ago that one can really enjoy the, the beauty of the pictures and yet understand how horrible war is. Thank you. A very, very good recommendation. There's also, uh, if I may add to that, there's also a very nice uh, song from Alt J uh, on Taro and and uh, Kappa. It, it fits perfectly to, to our region since not so many people know that he was actually Hungarian-American. Mm -hmm. um, so also coming from, from our region. Thank you, Daniela. It was very, yeah, very inspiring, very informative. Thanks a lot for finding the time. Thank you very much for listening to me. Yeah, and as, as always, you find further links and information to this episode in the descriptions and on social media. If you like this episode, please subscribe to our podcast and recommend it to your friends and colleagues. We would love to hear your ideas uh, and what topics, for example, you would like us to cover in future. So please give us some feedback and thank you for listening. Goodbye. So you enjoyed this podcast? Then tune into another CEE episode and subscribe to the IDM podcast series on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Acast, or elsewhere you get your podcast. And also have a look at the rest of our work on our website www.idm.at. For any feedback or podcast collaboration, feel free to contact me at e hontoberry at idm.at The email is in the description below. This was CEE Central Europe Explained, a podcast series produced by the Institute for the Danube Region and Central Europe, powered by Erste Group, with the ongoing participation of Daniela Paiden, Marvin Atalik, Daniel Martinek and Sebastian Schaeffer. Production and editing, Emma Hunterberry. Proofreading, Jack Gill. IDM Podcast. Institut für den Donauraum und Mitteleuropa. Institut für den Danube Region und Central Europe. European Perspectives. Regional Actions. Cooperation and Expertise since 1953.